a 20-something-year-old girl slips out of bed in the early morning where she spent it with her one-night stand. She gradually makes her way home to her house feeling dirty and like that moment of sex didn't provide for her the fulfillment that she was longing for. Older retired gentleman sitting by the Christmas tree with the fire going in the fireplace, looking at his family picture, wondering what went so wrong that he no longer talks to his children, and wondering what it's going to take to get back to a place uh, where they have relationship. Wondering if the silly political argument that started it all those years ago was really worth it. CEO sits in his office grabs the bottle of whiskey out of his top drawer. He's at the top of the ladder after years of climbing, looking around, feeling lonely, and wondering if it was worth trodden on all the people that are around him to get where he got to. Uh, parent sits at home, putting undue pressure on the kids to perform and do well, trying to mold them into an image that will make them look good as they wander through the world. You can put your own spin on it and your own story. What's the story that you're walking in? You can think of your friends and neighbors. What are the things that they are chasing after? that don't fulfill the longings that they once thought that they would. We're in the season in Advent, I want us to look at one of the characters this morning in the Christmas story that I think most of the time we ignore. I think part of why we ignore him in the Christmas story is because he's the antagonist in the story and we don't like to identify with those guys. Um, so let's jump over to Matthew chapter two uh, and we're gonna read the first 17 verses. So Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1, says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." Or route, as you say here. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet 
Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from them. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Yay, Merry Christmas. (laughs) I think we gloss over, as I said, the story of Herod because he's the villain in the story and it doesn't fit into the happy version of the Christmas story that we want want to see. We don't identify with his murderous rage. I don't believe there's anyone in here who has massacred a whole village full of boys under two. Um, God can redeem all people, so if you're there, no judgment. Um, I think we also don't want to include Heron because if you think about it, this really spoils your nativity scene. If you had to have little figurines of Herod massacring all of the boys in the village and put them all along your counter with Mary and Joseph, I don't think it works quite well. Well, we gloss over Herod because something about his story doesn't fit with the image that we have, but truth be told... We are a lot more like Herod than we think we are. I think there's a lot we can learn from him and if we are really willing to admit it, I think there's a lot we can see in this story that reveals some of the difficulties of the human heart. If we start with the positive, let's go there first. (laughs) Herod was an effective leader. Uh, He was a renowned builder. If you've been in Israel, you will see some of the amazing things that he built. One of my favorite sites to go to in Israel is Caesarea um, over on the coast, this gorgeous place. Um, As Herod was building this up to be a port city, um, unusual for what was happening in that day and age, he built an aqueduct to go from a nearby water source to bring fresh water all the way over ground into the port area so that the people working there would have fresh sanitized water to drink from. Um, He built multiple palaces and fortresses, um, something about what we'll talk in a minute, something about the grandeur of what he was able to do and the other side of it was his paranoia as a leader. Um, He is the one credited for expanding the, the reign of uh, over Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Uh, and the temple that he rebuilt was grander and better than the temple that Solomon had built. I think we've got a picture of a, like a visual graphic design version of what the temple looked like that he would have built at this time period. Um, he was a leader who was not very well loved by the Jewish people because he was seen as an outsider. So he decided one of the ways that I can carry favor with the people that I'm leading is to take this temple that means so much to them that's been destroyed and rebuild it bigger and better than it was before. Then the people will love me and then the people will see that I'm a good leader. So a man that, that he, he expanded Jerusalem as a city, he built marvels, um, but the negative side was that Herod was a person that was obsessed with power. He was constantly on guard from threats. He'd, he'd watched other rulers be taken down by family members. He'd watched a series of leaders being overthrown, people stabbed in the night, and so he was ridiculous 
incredibly paranoid, constantly on guard to any threat. And any time he got wind that someone was out to get him, he would just have him murdered. Including, the he had 10 wives. His most favorite one he killed out of paranoia. He killed his own sons out of fear that they were going to raise up and be more loved by the people. Um, he killed his own brother-in-law, who was the high priest at the time. And then 46 members of the Sanhedrin, who were of the, the previous dynasty that he was trying to eradicate to ensure that he would be able to hold his throne. Is it any wonder that at this point in the story... He gets wind of a new king being born. Uh, his reaction wasn't, whoopee-doo, let's worship the little baby. His reaction was, there is a threat. It is now my job to do whatever I can to eliminate this threat. And so he did what he did. He called in these wise men that he got wind of were coming uh, to find this ruler, uh, hoping to co-op them into revealing the location of this threat so he could kill it. When they circumvented that process, he came up with a better plan. I know the age of the child, so if I just kill every child in that vicinity of that age, I can eradicate the threat. You're identifying with them yet? <laughs> this massacre at Bethlehem, before I go any further, I just want to say this, this is one of these interesting pieces. When you come to uh, the historical accuracy of Scripture... Um, so there is lots of historical evidence of the events that happen that are written in the Bible. The massacre at Bethlehem is one of the pieces that has no historical evidence, which I find very, very interesting. And there's a couple of theories that get pushed around at this point. One of them is, at this point in history, Herod is so horrible and he's committed so many atrocities that murdering a, a few hundred kids in a village didn't seem like newsworthy information because the rest of what he was doing was so horrible. Um, uh, another theory that people put forward is that Bethlehem was such a small town and the number of kids that he would actually have to kill to eradicate Jesus was much, such a small number that it literally wasn't newsworthy because the numbers were so small and you're living in a culture where they're sacrificing kids to false gods and they're, they're killing babies left, right and center as acts of war and so it's just not common newsworthy pieces. Um, on the other side of the, the spectrum, some people posit that it, this event didn't actually happen and it's not a historical event that the massacre took place, but that Matthew is uh, using a literary device to help us understand what's going on in the background. That he is looking at the atrocities that Herod did by killing so many people who were the sons and daughters of Israel, um, that they were being brutally murdered, and that what uh, Matthew is trying to do is take the story of the Exodus, where God uh, takes his people into Egypt, rescues them out of Egypt, and in that process, you have the murder of all the firstborn, that he is taking the story and he's trying to prove that Jesus is the second Exodus and the fulfillment of all that Israel did before. And so he is elaborating on the death that he's seen in Herod's reign and reading that back onto the scripture that talks about the, the killing of the children and using them as parallels to help uh, uh, emphasize the point that he's making that Jesus is the one who comes to fulfill what Israel was supposed to do. 
So I say that because when we start with a story like this, some people are like, why is this part of the Bible? Why are we looking at this? Some people that like history go and they look and they say, well, historians say this isn't even in here, so can we trust the Bible? Um, so what I want to do is I'm just giving you some theories in here as to how we explain what is going on. Um, and I think all three of those are viable explanations. Um, I tend to lean in the camp that if it's in here, it happened. Um, I lean more on the, the literal side of things than, than on uh, Matthew just using a, a figure of speech in his writing. But regardless of what interpretation we take, the reality is at the center of the nativity story that we celebrate at this time of year is a massacre of a number of children uh, all under two in this area all for the sake of the ego of one man. I said we all have a little bit more Herod in us than we like to believe. <laughs> but it doesn't look like the massacre of children. One, one writer that I was, I was reading in preparation said, evil rarely presents itself as a beast with horns, fangs, and claws. Usually it dresses itself up in respectability and burrows deep into systems that we rely on to keep our societies from spinning into chaos. Wow. Sometimes the evil has embedded itself in a system that we've bought into that we don't even realize is opposed to the things of God. Um, I think, next thing I'm gonna put up on the screen, I think at times we have sanitized the incarnation story. And there, there's a good part of this, right? It's the story of God entering into humanity to enact his salvation plan for us. It's the result of the overflow of love. It's a revelation of the love of God. That's the part that we focus on. It's the revelation of the love of God that caused him to come and be born as a vulnerable child in this world so that he could then come and die for the sins of the world. And that's the part that we like to focus on. It's the part we like to focus on in our faith in general, but it's the part we really like to focus on at the Christmas time. We forget that the other side of the incarnation is that God was coming into the world to establish an alternative kingdom to the kingdom of the world. That we as fallen human beings are in the habit and pattern and practice of establishing our own kingdoms that are entirely opposed to the way of God and that the entrance of Jesus into the world was his step to combat and come against the fallen kingdoms that we are building. He came to overthrow the powers of darkness. So while the, the Christmas story is indeed revelation that Jesus, the light of the world, entered the darkness of the world, it's also the story of God entering the world to establish a kingdom that confronts the kingdom of darkness. And that's a kingdom of darkness that exists inside of you. Jesus entered the world, it's as much a confrontation with the brokenness inside of us at Christmas. Christmas, him entering at Christmas, is as much a confrontation with the brokenness inside of us as the Easter story is. We tend to break out, this is the love part, that's the one where he's really dealing with our sin. Um, but the Christmas story is as much a confrontation with the fallenness of our hearts as the Easter story is. Um, what fuels are self-made kingdoms. 
I would say there's two things that we're fighting with all the time that are fueling the kingdoms that we're building, and I'll explain these a little bit more. Um, but these are fear and insecurity. We see them so clearly in the historical information about King Herod. King Herod had built a kingdom. He had a thirst for power. He was afraid of being weak, forgotten, insignificant. He was constantly insecure that people would love a different ruler, would follow a different ruler, and went to great lengths to mitigate the fear and the insecurity he felt to establish a kingdom that could not be shaken. Fear and insecurity are the very things that cause us to build and then protect the kingdoms that we have established, that we erect to feel safe, secure, and important. So think of one of them. One of the kingdoms we build, the kingdom of control. I want to feel in control. And so I'm going to expend a lot of energy and time and effort to make sure I have things exactly the way I want. Some of the ways we build control is through our routine. I wake up at the same time in the morning. I go to bed at the same time at night. Your column is going to look exactly the same on each of these. Um, We eat our breakfast the same way. We go to the same coffee shop. We use routine as a way of control. And you know it's a kingdom that you've built because when someone walks into your life and interrupts your routine, rather than say, oh, my routine's been interrupted, you say, what a horrible narcissistic person they are. They're all about themselves, right? You've done this, right? How dare they wake me up earlier? How dare they keep me up at night? How dare they cut me off going into the line at Starbucks so that I had to wait an extra three minutes for my coffee? How dare they be out of honey? We see it in in our defensiveness. When people come to uh, point things out in our life, to offer constructive feedback to ask questions, we get defensive. I have to protect myself at all costs. A question about why I'm doing what I'm doing is not just a question with your inquisitiveness. You are calling me a fraud, a failure, a fake. Um, we, we, We get stuck in a scarcity mindset. There's not enough to go around, so I have to collect everything for myself. I have to save all the money. I have to guard all my time because there's just not enough for everybody. When two people are working alongside each other on a team, there's not enough uh, praise and accolades within the team for everybody, so I've got to hoard as much of it as I can for myself, often at your expense. Uh, I've got to keep the money. I've got to keep the control. I've got to keep the praise. Um, competitiveness is one of the fuels of all of this. We see it in the background. Uh, I have to beat them or I lose. You know it when you can't celebrate someone else's success. When someone is encroaching on your territory where the grandkid loves, seems to pour more affection on your spouse than you. When the family seems to want to be in your house more than someone else's house, we begin to keep score and tally. And we're building something inside of ourselves. We're protecting a kingdom that we have erected. And we don't often realize the way that we are hurting and ostracizing and sometimes like murdering the people round about us in the process of protecting the throne that we've built for ourselves. 
We see it when we're stuck in the mentality that I'm the victim and everyone else is to blame. If you're looking at a series of events in your life that have all been done against you and everyone else is the one at fault, you're stuck in a victim mentality and likely you're part of the problem. Um, and you've built a kingdom and your throne is built on, if I'm the victim, then everyone else is evil and I'm the good, poor person that's been knocked down. And we see it when we live in hiddenness. When we protect our kingdom so much and the image that we've built that we hide all the things that are going wrong in the background. We look at a person like Herod and we go, he desperately needs Jesus, right? He desperately needs healing. He's so broken and messed up, who would do that? But his life reveals to us that we are broken, that we need healing, that we need Jesus as much as everyone else. The incarnation and Herod's reaction to the incarnation reminds us that we have a choice that we make every day in our faith. We either yield to Christ's kingdom or we fight for our own. We can push people away. We can amass a fortune. We can hide vulnerabilities. We can climb ladders. We can hold ourselves and everyone around us to unattainable standards. We can beat ourselves up. We can seek yet another pleasurable experience. We can try and coast through without ruffling any feathers or we can yield our kingdom to Jesus. We can understand that in him I'm good I don't have to prove to the world my goodness and my perfection. We can understand that in him we are wanted and loved. We don't have to fear rejection and push everyone away out of fear of rejection. In him we understand that we're free from performing because he sees all our flaws. He sees all our brokenness and chooses us regardless of how we perform. In him, we don't have to do things that make us look different from the rest of the world and cause us to stand out from the crowd because he made us perfectly unique. We don't need to fight to be secure and safe because in him, we are safe. He has created us. He cares for us. He's providing for us. In him, we don't have to fight to be seen because to him, our presence matters. Sometimes it's hard to see the kingdoms that we have built until someone tries to get in the way of them. And then we see the ugliness of our response and it reveals the kingdom that we've built. In those moments when the ugliness of our hearts is exposed, we can either yield to the kingdom of Jesus or we can be like Herod and fight for our own even if it hurts multiple people around us. Think in the world that we live in with the challenges that we see and the pain that we experience in our own life. It takes great faith to see the kingdom of God when the world around us is offering us kingdoms that are so broken. Our pride, our arrogance, um, our fear all blind us to the kingdoms that we're establishing so that we don't see what we really need to see. And again, the thing that we know, right? We know it's the cross 
that takes the blinders off to see the false kingdoms that we are erecting. It's the cross that allows us to see who we are and whose we are and how we are supposed to function in this world that we're living. It's the cross that invites us to that place of taking off our our crown and casting it at the feet of Jesus so that we can partner with him in the work of building his kingdom. Jesus wants us freed from the need to build and protect our kingdom. Here's his words in Luke 12. He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. We don't have to build our own kingdom to have value and worth in the world. Jesus already gives us the gift of his kingdom. We don't have to fight for control and position and ruling because Jesus makes us co-heirs with him in the kingdom despite the sin and the brokenness that we bring into the, the picture. We don't have to prove our worth to ourselves or the people round about us because in the kingdom that the Father delights to give us, we are rulers and co-heirs and priests and royalty, his beloved, his treasured possession. He knows our worth and imparts it to us. In the kingdom that he gives us, we don't run out of resources because we've got every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies at our fingertips and every resource available to us in this kingdom that he gives to us. Fear and insecurity lie behind our kingdom building. But Jesus says, so don't be afraid. Don't give in to the insecurity. Your father is pleased to give you a better kingdom. Stop fighting for your own. Does it sound like I'm twisting what this passage is saying? If we're in any doubt, look at the context. So I'm gonna go back to Luke 12, verse 22. Look at the fear and the insecurity that Jesus is confronting in our kingdom building. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. Feeling insecure? What am I gonna have to eat? About my body? What am I gonna wear? For life is more than food and the body's more than clothes. Consider the ravens. Stop worrying, stop being fearful, stop being insecure. They don't sow or reap, yet they have enough. Your performance doesn't matter. Uh, They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? Don't let the fear and the insecurity get in the way. Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, you can compare yourself to the king and all that he got to wear, but Solomon and all of his splendor was not even dressed like one of these flowers. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You of little faith. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink Don't worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So the kingdoms that you're building, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. We don't need to fear, worry, 
have stress or strive. Those are the words that always come up when we are seeking our own kingdom first. But when we seek his kingdom first, the kingdom that is gifted to us, those words disappear. And the words that come in their place are peace, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Christmas or Advent is a time where all of this stuff gets stirred up more than ever. The messaging from the world right now is telling us all the things that we don't have that our kingdom that we've built needs. We are reminded of all the issues that exist in our families. You can have a great family, but you remember when you go back into the house that it is not fun. And if you have a spouse and you love being with your family, most of the time they don't love it quite so much. Um, But these kingdoms are being stirred up at this time of year. And so I, I wanted to focus on Herod because I wanted to say, as you are going through this season and things are stirring in you, you feel yourself striving, you feel yourself get frenetic, you're worrying about money, you're concerned about being with family, Uh, you're worried about disappointing people, you're feeling lonely or isolated. As those things stir up, ask yourself the question, is this the revelation of a kingdom that I am building and trying to maintain? As you look at people in your life and you see division, Uh, and and non-reconciled relationships, this is a time to say, is there something I am protecting in myself that is causing me to keep people at a distance uh, to protect the, the identity in the kingdom that I've built? Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom. Advent and, and what we do at church this season is calling us back Uh, even more than calling us back to a baby was born in Bethlehem, it's calling us back to the vision of the kingdom that was established when Jesus came and was born here. It's calling us back to the reality that the kingdoms of the world were broken and God came himself to enter in to confront that brokenness and present an alternate way. So during Christmas, we need to stop trying to be someone and the things that we wear or the things that we have or the way that we host and instead understand that we already are someone because of what Jesus has done for us. And that starts back at the moment of your conception, actually goes before that, to his conception of you in his mind. You were already someone. And then you come live here in all your brokenness and feelings and you are a someone. And then he saves you out of that and makes you a someone. And then he works his sanctification in you and makes you even more of a someone. But the best someone you can be is you looking like Jesus. We need to stop trying to make something of ourselves and realize that not only are we something, but he's already made, realize that we're not just someone, but he's already made us something. He's made us a person with value and purpose that in a season like this gets marred by the competing kingdoms that we find ourselves fighting against. Last night, uh, we were sitting at home. The kids wanted to watch a Christmas movie as a family and we stumbled across an old favorite, Home Alone. (laughs) I did comment to Monica when the theme tune comes on. 
it's like, it's Christmas, right? That's the sound of Christmas. Uh, But if you remember in the movie, uh, Kevin is left home alone and there's old man Marley, who's a neighbor down the street who Kevin is terrified of because old man Marley is rumored to be a serial killer that killed his children using the snow shovel and hid them in the garbage cans in his backyard. And they they, they call him the South Bend Shovel Slayer. Uh, So in this story, every time Kevin runs into him or sees him, he runs away screaming. Um, There is a beautiful scene later on in the movie where um, Kevin is growing internally. He's confronting his fears. He ends up in the church. And I don't know if you remember, old man Marley comes up and sits next to him. This scene, uh, I think we can look at Herod and go, I'm nothing like that. And I think I can talk about building kingdoms and think, ah, nothing in my life is that drastic. But this part of the movie, we're going to look at it in a little second, we'll play it. I think it shows the subtle ways that our fears and our insecurities uh, are revealed in this season. Uh, that, uh, and the, the, it reveals the kingdoms that we've built and the self-protective ways that we act in response. So let's, let's watch just a little clip from Home Alone because it isn't Christmas without it. Christmas. May I sit down? That's my granddaughter up there. The little red-haired girl. She's about your age. You know her? No. You live next to me, don't you? You can say hello when you see me. You don't have to be afraid. There's a lot of things going around about me, but none of it's true. Okay? Been a good boy this year? I think so. You swear to it? No. Yeah, I had a feeling. Well, this is the place to be. You're feeling bad about yourself. It is? I think so. Are you feeling bad about yourself? No. I've been kind of a pain lately. I said some things I shouldn't have. I really haven't been too good this year. Yeah. I'm kind of upset about it because I really like my family. Even though sometimes I say I don't. Sometimes I even think I don't. Do you get that? I think so. How you feel about your family is a complicated thing. Especially with an older brother. Deep down, you always love him. You can forget that you love them. And you can hurt them and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young. You want to know the real reason why I'm here right now? Sure. I came to hear my granddaughter sing. And I can't come and hear her tonight. You have plans? No. I'm not welcome. At church? Oh, you're always welcome to church. I'm not welcome with my son. Years back, before you and your family moved on the block, I had an argument with my son. How old is he? He's grown up. We lost our tempers. And I said I didn't care to see him anymore. He said the same. We haven't spoken to each other since. If you miss him, why don't you call him? I'm afraid if I call him, he won't talk to me. How do you know? 
I don't know. I'm just afraid he won't. No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. That's true. I've always been afraid of our basement. It's dark, there's weird stuff down there, and it smells funny, that sort of thing. It's bothered me for years. Yeah, basements are like that. Then I made myself go down there to do some laundry, and I found out it's not so bad. All this time I've been worrying about it, but if you turn on the lights, it's no big deal. What's your point? My point is you should call your son. What if he won't talk to me? At least you'll know. Then you can stop worrying about it. And you won't have to be afraid anymore. I don't care how mad I was, I talked to my dad. Especially around the holidays. I don't know. Just give it a shot. For your granddaughter anyway. I'm sure she misses you. And the presents. I sent her a check. Wish my grandparents said that. They always send me clothes. Last year I got a sweater with a big bird knitted on it. Oh, that's nice. Not for a guy in the second grade. You can get beat up for wearing something like that. Oh? Yeah. I have a friend who got nailed because there was a rumor he wore dinosaur pajamas. You better run along home where you belong. You think about what I said, all right? Okay. It's nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. Point number one, if you're a grandparent, send a check. Do <laughs> 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 you catch the moment in there? Just years ago, we had an argument. I said, I don't want to see you anymore. Pride and arrogance that gets in the way of reconciliation. And then when he says, well, why don't you call him? He says, I'm afraid he won't talk to me. The fear that underlies the kingdom that has been built in that moment that fuels a division. And if you've watched the movie, you know the end of the story. The beautiful moment when uh, Kevin's looking out the window and he sees uh, old man Marley with his son and daughter-in-law and granddaughter walking into the house together. Um, all because of a moment, a moment in a church, funnily enough, um, where, Jesus, uh, where Kevin becomes the voice of Jesus, speaking gently and lovingly. I love the non-confrontational way of, this, of, of the picture, just lovingly and gently. Perhaps you should call him. I think in a season like this, it's often the way of Jesus and exposing the broken kingdoms that, that we're walking in. It's the, that little thing inside that says, I probably shouldn't do that anymore. I probably should reach out to that person. I probably should say sorry. I probably shouldn't be so hard on my kids. You, you, know, the, you know the ones. We never think of that moment as a kingdom building moment, a self kingdom building moment. But pride and arrogance caused the argument Pride and arrogance maintained the position of I'm right. Pride and arrogance built the walls that kept other people out and myself safely inside. The pride and arrogance rooted in fear and insecurity. What happens when it's all gone? 
I think with those moments in mind, it's true that there's more of Herod in us than we care to admit. We build kingdoms, we push people away. And I think perhaps unlike Herod, a lot of the time I think we hurt other people unintentionally in the ways that we rebuild or we protect the kingdoms that we've built. So a couple of simple things here. How do you overcome your inner Herod? Step one, take time to reflect on the kingdoms that you are protecting. Step one of growth is always acknowledging the issue that we have inside and oftentimes they're hard to see. If you're here and you're thinking, I've walked with Jesus so long, I'm only about his kingdom and nothing else, you are very blind, my friend. Uh, Until you meet him face to face, there's always a kingdom of self that you're fighting against. So step one is acknowledging it. If you can't think of stuff, if nothing's stirring, you might want to ask friends or family, hey, what are some of the kingdoms that I build for myself? What are some of the ways you see me self-protect? You might want to skip straight to step five. (laughs) Find a therapist. Um, Step two, as you're figuring out what the kingdom is that you are fighting to protect, to make a recommitment to choose his kingdom over your own. Jesus, I see the way I'm still trying to climb the ladder so that people think I'm important. God, I, can't, I, I don't wanna do that anymore. Like that's a kingdom that is about me and not about you. So instead I choose the way of Jesus to be born into nothingness, to grow up in obscurity, to do the things that, that bring you glory. God, I'm trying to control everything and make it perfect. But God, that just hurts me and the people around me. So instead, I accept the truth that you made this world good with all its imperfections. And Jesus, I need you to help me overcome the imperfections uh, to stand with you. Number three, like Kevin, sometimes you just gotta go down into the basement, smell the smells, Experience the darkness, acknowledge and face the fears. Under each of those insecurities is a fear. Under each of those kingdoms is a fear. God, without recognition, I'm nothing. God, without like my routine and my structure, people will think I'm just a spontaneous nobody that doesn't care about anything in the world. Those things are not true. We've got to acknowledge and face them. If I try and reconcile with this person, what happens if they throw it back in my face? Acknowledge the fears, and sometimes we just gotta face, face them. We gotta to learn to forgive and bless. That always starts with ourself first. There's a lot of self-forgiveness we've gotta do at this time of year as we look back at all the ways that we failed, um, and all the ways we've failed people around us before we ever can get to the place of forgiving the people around us and, and blessing them. And then the last one, I've said this multiple times, I think the best thing, or one of the best things all of us can do for the kingdom of God is go see a therapist. who can help you uncover all these kingdoms that we're building, all the reasons why, all the brokenness that we're walking in, help us to walk into that place of wholeness so that we can offer the world what Jesus really wants us to offer, which is him. The hope and the joy of a God who came into the world to show us that we're loved and to confront the kingdoms of darkness so that he could establish the better kingdom where we can have the fullness that he promises us. So I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna let us have a little uh, 
quiet moment to ourselves before we talk with one another. So um, here's the question that I want you to think about and then share with someone. It's simply, what is your inner Herod moment? What, what are you building and protecting um, that God may want you to take steps towards shedding in this season? So let me pray. I'll give you a moment to reflect and then we'll share. God, I thank you that you are not a God who sanitizes the story. You didn't have to put this part in. Um, And yet you take all the messy, ugly details and you put them there for us to see because you're not scared of them in history and you sure ain't scared of them in our hearts. And so God, thank you that you move past the mess and you work redemptively in the story. God, this story is horrible. Um, But thank you that despite Herod's greatest attempt to destroy you, that you worked in the background, taking Jesus to Egypt, bringing him back, uh, protecting, preserving, so that he could rescue the world. And thank you that you do the same thing in us, that you, you don't keep us from the hard stuff, but you protect us in it, and you work redemptively through it. Um, so that we understand you more fully and so that we can communicate the hope of Jesus to the world. And then God, forgive us. Um, We like to gloss over the story and identify with the shepherds or the wise men and their joy at your incarnation and we forget that sometimes we look a bit more like Herod, building our own kingdoms, trying to protect them, hurting people around us. Um, And we're often blind to the extent of it. So God, this Christmas, would you open our eyes uh, and would you do it with gentleness? Would you help us to see the kingdoms we've built? Would you help us to take steps to cast them down? And would you help us reorient ourselves so that we're more about your kingdom than our own? Uh, So that the world around us that is caught up in these kingdoms that don't satisfy um, can experience you and the joy of your kingdom and the hope that you bring. Um, As you change it all, you redeem it all, and you store it to be the way it's supposed to be. So Jesus, this Advent, we cast our crowns at your feet, and we fix our eyes on the promise of your return when all will be put right. And while we wait, help us to make the world look a little bit more like your kingdom here and now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So yeah, turn to someone next to you, grab a couple of people. What's the kingdom you've built or what's the inner Herod that you've been building and protecting?